1: Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. Uh, my name is Janine Garner and I am the host of this podcast. Um, I'm really excited today because on the show we have Stephen Sheila. He is the digital CEO with over 25 years of experience across multiple industries, but most notably the former Facebook Managing Director for Australia and New Zealand where he guided Facebook's unprecedented rise from quirky Silicon Valley startup to media and technology titan. His passion now is about helping Australian businesses master digital strategy and really becoming leaders in their field. He has worked alongside Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, as well as Facebook Silicon Valley leaders. And his tenure whilst there um, actually saw uh, Facebook Uh, becoming the success uh, that it it became over the last few years. His corporate career, um, as I said, across multiple industries, retail, e-commerce, automotive, financial services, and today as founder of Global Advisory, the digital CEO, senior
2: advisor to McKinsey & Company, and executive...
1: Australian Graduate School of Management. His whole purpose is about partnering with CEOs and boards of some of the world's leading organizations to help them build world-beating strategies. He is a speaker. He's been on that TEDx stage, and it's an absolute pleasure to have Stephen with me today. Welcome to the show, Stephen.
0: It is wonderful to be here with you, Janine. Thanks for having me.
1: My absolute pleasure. Now, I want to go way back before we start talking about what you're doing now. Can you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up and why?
0: Yeah, it's funny. You just gave that description, which is, I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking, are you, are you talking about me? Because <laughs> it, it, it's kind of crazy. I think when anybody gets through the arc of their life, and I'm not at the end of my life, I'm going to be around, God willing, I'm, I'll be here another 50 years plus. But um, you come to certain milestones in your life and you start to reflect back on you know, some, some people's birthdays or anniversaries or retirements, whatever it is. And I'm in that stage now where I'm sort of thinking back to how did it all start and what did I want to do. And back in the early days, I'm uh, from—I was born in Buffalo, New York, which is in uh, uh, not at the glamorous end of New York State, which is New York City. I'm at the sort of the working-class, unglamorous end of the state, which is near the Great Lakes in Canada. And so, very unglamorous place to grow up. And the truth is, um, where I was born, um, we sat between a steel mill and. A car factory like it was a very everybody worked in the steel plant or the car plant and that was sort of the world that we were in and your aspirations were pretty um modest people wanted to go to uh university or college in the u.s everybody was you know and i was always planning to go to college but i really had no idea about the wider world i lived in a very sort of small world bubble and that's the way a lot of the world uh, at least in america we lived in those days and my aspirations, uh, were just, I just wanted to learn and, and see stuff. I really wanted to get out of my small town, my relatively small town. And I had no idea what I wanted to do for a career. I can tell you, well, I just had no idea. And so my, my interest in the world was they just make enough money to kind of get to the next thing. And the next thing was often by the time I got to my late teens, the next thing was the next country or the next, uh, you know, the next mountain to climb or the next, uh, city to see. And so travel became a real vector of my, uh, my development in those days. And so that's, I just started exploring the world. And, uh, well, through my twenties, I I really didn't have a, I'd say I wore a backpack in my twenties and I wore a suit in my thirties. I didn't actually get a job, a real job until I was about 29, 30 years old. So, um, but I think that, I think that period in my life held me in really good stead. It uh, it taught me to be resourceful and it, and it gave me an opportunity to see the world which um taught me and being an american kid a lot of americans like grow up with a lot of myopia about the world and i just started to see that the world was bigger than you know than than, than just the american way of doing things and i think that has, that has been very uh, very valuable for me in my life
1: so what was the watershed moment that's got you to where you're at now can you remember a moment where uh, you almost went, Wow, I'm I'm finally doing what I love doing.
3: Yeah. It's that's funny. I can't
0: think of one single moment, but I can think of, of smaller moments along the way. And I I think that's the way life is. I often it's not like the movie where there's one big aha. There's little aha's that's little course corrections along the way. So one course correction or one small moment was uh I decided when I was about 29 to um, to get another degree, which seems odd, but I, I started to think about a career. And my initial instinct was to go and get a PhD in history because my undergraduate degree was in history. And I actually investigated that. And I, I went to a university and I, I was asked about the program and it was going to be like three years and it was going to cost this much money. And then at the other end, what would happen was I would become a historian, right? I would, and I love history. And, I, and in some ways, I think maybe I'd love to be a historian. But at the time, I said to myself, do I really want to be a historian and just be like teaching history in a university? I thought, no, that doesn't really sound like me. So I popped around to another place, which at the same university, which was the business school, because uh, I'd heard about, hey, you can do this thing called an MBA. And to me, that sounded very practical. It was like, well, I could study, but I could also learn about something that I could that business. That sounds like it sounds a little more like it's got better future to it than being a historian. And so I did, I enrolled in a business school and I got an MBA and it really opened my mind to how business works and runs and, and, and all the multi uh, multi, business is fascinating because it's about people, it's about technology, it's about money, it's about, you know, products. It's, It's so many aspects of business. And so it opened my mind to a career in business that I really hadn't fully considered before. So that was a, that to answer your question, that was probably one of those big moments.
1: Mm. Can you think of someone that has sort of been that major influence in your, in your life and, and what is it about them that's, that's been that influence?
0: Yeah, it's probably one person I think has been very influential in my recent life Um, has actually been Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, and Mark's influential on a lot of people, and he's influential on, the, on a global scale. But when I first joined Facebook, I I knew of Mark. I mean, I knew knew the things that everybody knew about Mark. I guess those were the public image. Uh, I'd never met him un, until I joined Facebook, and I really didn't think a lot about Mark He was just one of those people in the world that you know about when I'd seen the movie. The, the the social network, but I didn't really think a lot. But once I got to Facebook, I and I got to know Mark a little more, and I got to know the business he built, and the culture he built, and how he thinks about the world. I was I was just really struck by uh, somebody that hey, I think he had gone from being very immature and quite um, you know adolescent, and we all were immature and adolescent at one time. In very short order, he went to another place, which was about um, being very idealistic and being very deliberate about the type of things that he wanted to do, to build a culture, to build a business, to build a um, kind of movement. That, that I mean, Facebook really was almost like a cult, a movement to kind of change the world. And and Mark was a real. He was a, he was a leader that I think changed himself a lot. I was very impressed by how Mark would challenge himself and push himself, and he didn't accept that he knew all the answers even though he's clearly the smartest guy in the room and i that sort of humility really struck me as well so yeah Mark's mark's been a big influence on my own thinking about building businesses and and building cultures and changing the world and um so i really credit him with uh, with, with that
1: yes we were talking last night actually at uh, dinner about the the curious thinking behind the development of Facebook of somebody, you know, the idea from somebody that is so smart and almost so introverted to actually have created one of the world's biggest social platforms. It's, a, it's like this, this weird thing in the English. It's an
0: irony. Yeah.
1: It's a total yeah, irony.
0: It's, it's an irony. And, um, uh, but I'll tell you this, I think when, I was at Facebook for many years and uh, in the early days I had more contact with people like Mark. And Sheryl Sandberg, and there's other leaders in Facebook that the outside world doesn't know as much, but are equally mm-hmm. important in many ways to Facebook's uh, success. And uh, so, when Facebook was smaller, I spent much more, more, yeah, more yeah, time exactly. in that world. But it got bigger, as sp- got bigger, I spent less time because I was out in this part of the world much more. Um, but in those early days, it was very, just, it was so valuable, and I I kind of knew it. The good thing about it at the time when I was in Facebook was. When I joined Facebook, I—if you've seen my TED talk, I talked about—I was, to my knowledge, I was the oldest employee that that Facebook had hired to that point in time. I was, I was 22 years older than the average Facebook employee. When I joined, I was 47. The average employee was 25. Mark was 27. He was 20 years younger than me. And so, what by what I appreciated was, hey, this is really an amazing time, and this is an amazing experience. A lot of the younger folks at Facebook, I don't think, really savored and appreciated. You know, they say youth is wasted on the young.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and I think they didn't savor how special those moments were because we were in a way changing the world and we were doing it in this unique culture with this unique leader. And now, you know, things have changed. I not mean, Mark, I'm sure, he doesn't have the time he used to have to, you know, to spend with people and to build the culture. You know, he's got huge problems that he has to solve and you know, that's the nature of life. life changes as things go on but uh but I really did appreciate that time that I had those early days at Facebook.
1: I'd love to talk about that just for one second, where just again reiterating you were probably one of the oldest people within Facebook at the time with the average employee I think you said about twenty five years old how did you how did you go about um being accepted into such a young organization, how did you manage those early days in terms of being accepted, building that engagement, building that acceptance amongst the team that actually you did have something to add of value?
3: Yeah. the It was a
0: challenge and it was one that um, I probably, uh, I didn't fully appreciate till I walked in the door and it's like you walk into a party and you suddenly realize wait a minute I'm not dressed right for this party and you know you you kind of say okay I got to make the best of it cuz I don't have time to change my clothes um and so yeah I wound up at Facebook and and uh you know not everybody was 25 that was the average age but uh it was pretty young and very successful uh, in some cases, very wealthy people inside of Facebook who've done very, you know, well through the through Facebook's uh, the growth of Facebook, and they were there was there was just I would call them cultural icons within the business. They were people who were just iconically um, regarded by others within inside Facebook as just pillars of Facebook's um, culture, and. These people were sprinkled around and they had a certain aura about them. I mean, it was weird. You go into this business and just think, oh, it's another 23 year old. But you know, some of these 23 year olds, I mean, they were amazing people. Facebook brought in amazing people and then they made themselves amazing as well. I think there was just this, there was this virtuous circle of, of great people coming in who just became even greater. And so you're surrounded by all of them and they're twenty-five 25 years younger than you. And you just say, well, what am I going to add to this? And you can't fall back. On your resume or your hey, I did this and kid, you know you don't, you know I'm going to tell you how it is. That's not going to work, and it didn't work. So I I tried very different facts. So I tried things that that wound up working very effectively. So one was um, with my team, I would sit down and my team were all much younger than me. I would sit down and say, look, let me be honest with you. I really don't care if we succeed or fail, and I don't care if I get fired or I don't. It, but life is long. I'm not clinging to this job. You know, I can get another right job. But what I care about is you guys and you being successful. So my job is to make you successful. That's my job description. And I think that was refreshing for them because I think they expected I would come in and kind of try to be a dictator or a, you know a manager. And they hate Facebook. Hates managers. They say they like you know team players and collaboration. And so that sort of freed them a little bit and freed me. Freed me too know, um, so my job is to make you successful. So let's figure out a way to make that happen. And then I did other things like um, I admitted that uh, instead of telling them everything I knew, right? I think that's a mistake. It's sort of like acting like you know the answer. I took the opposite tack. I said, I don't know anything. I actually know nothing. You teach me what you do and teach me what you think I should be doing and teach me how this all works. When you turn somebody from a listener and often, un, you know, an unwilling listener into a teacher, you empower them in a way that you just can't imagine the how they light up and how they then bring everything to the fore. So I tried to turn everybody around me, all these 25-year-olds into teachers that were teaching me about what they did, how they did it, what they thought I should do, what they thought I... I, sh- I shouldn't do, and from all of that, I built up a picture of how Facebook works because in those days it was a still a very chaotic business, so I built up a picture of how does it work, how should it work, who does what? how do I relate to people how do they relate to me? what is my job? what do I need to do to deliver on you know my mission my impact in the in the role and it built it brought me so so much credibility uh, with uh, all the folks I was working with who I think like, you know, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but I think they kind of said, Hey, this, this person, even though he's old, <laughs> older, and I was only 47, 47, I was not old. Um, you know, he's one of us. He's, he's willing to, you know, he's willing to be one of us. And then over time, my experience and my wisdom such as it was, um, was much more accepted by them because they saw how much I took from them first before I tried to give the course on them or give them my wisdom. I said, "Let me take your wisdom first. and that was just a real learning for me. Turning people into teachers is really empowering for everybody.
1: And I think um, I love that, Stephen. I think it's um, it talks to this concept of value exchange and being attention out and always curious about the possibility of what you can learn, and it actually does take. it takes you as the list you to become the listener as well as creating that environment for the people around you to feel safe enough to be able to share their knowledge um and I, i you know i couldn't agree more i think um i have this philosophy that every single day at every single moment there's an opportunity to learn but the challenge in the world that we're living in is you've got to actually be present and focused to see the learning that's in front of you so um that's That's a great bit of insight to share with our listeners, particularly from that leadership position. Um, now you talk, you're really passionate and you talk a lot now about the fact that the world isn't changing, it has gone digital, it is evolving and it's moving at an incredible pace. But your concern is that Australian businesses are at risk of falling behind. can you Can you expand a little bit more on on where that thinking comes from? And maybe share some examples of where we do need to think differently or speed up or approach digital strategy differently.
0: Absolutely. And um, it was inside of Facebook and, um, you know, I have friends at Google and my wife, um, she used to work at Apple and also at Amazon. So we were very lucky. We got the, um, you know, we were on the front of the roller coaster, you know, kind of city being, Part of these businesses that were just driving so much change in the world, but then I would step out of Facebook or I'd go and see. Uh, I had relationships all over um, Australia with you know big big companies, and it felt like I was in a different world when I would see them. Like, and I felt and, and I felt like they didn't see what was going on in this, this disruptive digital space. And uh, when I eventually, when I retired from Facebook, um, you know, I, I took some time to think about it. But then I thought. And what better way to use my, my, my skills, my experience, and my my relationships and my access with, with all kinds of leaders, business leaders, political leaders in this country, than to kind of dedicate myself to getting Australia making Australia more digital, as as an economy. Now, where that comes from is if you look at if you look at how Australia rates uh, and ranks uh, compared against other developed and developing countries in the world and the organizations like the OECD do these studies, you will find that big business, small business, and government in Australia are way down the list in terms of being um, using digital tools or being digitized. And this is not just having a website or a a mobile app. This is how you use artificial intelligence, data, analytics, all these sort of higher, more sophisticated digital things within your business. And Australia's um, consumers are very good at adopting new technology. We're one of the best in the world, but Business is slower. And unfortunately, if you go to countries like, um, and not just the the countries like the U.S., but I'm talking about places like like Israel or Singapore or Korea or China or or Scandinavia, these countries are, the businesses are just um, so much more digitized, so much more digitally savvy, so much more um, savvy about using technology and data to create value for their customers and for the employees um, that you come back to Australia and it's almost like, Hey, it feels like 1985. Um, and that, and I've been in Australia for many years, decades now. And so I feel like I want to give back to the country and make Australia a more digital place. If I can just have that little bit of impact over the next you know, 10, 15 years, uh, I've, I feel like I've done something useful with my, with my time on this planet. Now you asked sort of an, for an example. I'll give you a, I'll give you a, uh, this is a really interesting one because I, and I've pulled this one before, but I think people, it, it, it helps people kind of go, wow, I, now I get what you're talking about. So let's uh, I was with an airline recently and um, I'll tell you who it was. It was Qantas. And I was with the leadership team of Qantas and they were asking me a lot of questions about what would Facebook or Amazon or Google do if they were running an airline, kind of hypothetical, you know, how would we think differently about running an airline? And I asked them a a few simple questions. And so one was, how much do you know about how well people sleep on your plane? And the reason I focused on that question was a Silicon Valley company or a digital native digital focus company really focuses on, one thing they focus on is this question of friction. It's like removing friction from customer experiences. So Uber, for example, is really good at removing friction from getting a, a cab and paying for a a car you know they've done very good you just press the button a couple times you get in the car you drive away the driver knows exactly where they're going they drop you off you don't even have to pay you walk away that's removing friction and so the reason i asked about sleep on planes was sleep is probably the biggest friction that there is in long haul travel particularly for an airline like quentin which has you know planes going to la and singapore and london sleep is terrible and we all know this we all experience sleep is awful and they they then look. They earnestly tried to answer my question, but they started to focus on the solution. They started to say, "Well, you know, we we you know we try to uh, make sure that we take spiciness out of the food. You know, we try to keep the um, you know keep people from getting too drunk. We put flat beds, nice flat beds in business class, so they're really comfortable. They're the best beds in the world. And I was just like, look, with no you know with no offense, it sounds like you know nothing about how well. people sleep. you have no data, you can't tell me the person in row six B. And c 60 on that flight slept really well or slept really poorly. You don't have the data. You can't tell me that. So this huge friction. You actually have no insight into. So I said, So well, that's the difference between you and a and a digital native company and a customer obsessed company. They would say, no, it's not. It's not good enough to say we don't know. They would go and they would find sensors and they would embed them in the. For example, they would embed them in the cabin of the plane that sensors could measure the the carbon dioxide and the oxygen and the temperature and the dew point and the condensation and the humidity. Sensors that are so good that they could, they could they could understand through monitoring the atmosphere how well people are sleeping in the seat that's just below the sensor, and and then if those sensors didn't even exist, those companies would go out and they would invent them. They would hire smart people and they would invent that technology because they would not stop. And so, to quantum's credit, they left the room and said, "Hey, you're right. We need to figure this out." So they've gone away and they're not trying to figure out the state of sensing technology too. To try to solve this problem about how well do people sleep on our planes, and let's let's get data, and let's with that data let's understand how we can make it a better experience, and maybe we can not just be the world's safest airline, we could be the world's best sleeping airline, mm-hmm. and then maybe we we actually get so much data from how well people uh, you know about people sleeping on planes, we have more people sleeping in a controlled mm-hmm. environment than any other type of business in the world, we could use that data. And a whole other business, which is called Sleep Science. So maybe actually we can make more money out of Sleep Science than we do out of running an airline. Airlines are actually notoriously unprofitable businesses. So this is my example. It's to say, you know, if you think about data and technology and, and you're obsessed by your customers, you start to have a very different plan on the type of business you build. So I say any any business in Australia, are you measuring the air that your customers breathe to really get that deep insight?
1: I love that because there's a lot of, it's like people put things on, you know, mission statements or company goals, but what you've identified there is you can say that you are customer focused, but what does that really mean? And to me, what you're saying is you've got to go deeper. You've got to go really deep to understand everything about them and find those answers. And actually data is key, right? So we're becoming, everything seems to be a data play to help you find Those gaps, those opportunities to make people's lives easier or better.
0: Exactly. It is. It is today and today and into the future. And and I mean, there's another discussion that we had around data, around some of the the risks. But there's one of the things I say to every many businesses Mm. are customer centric now, right? It's like it's motherhood and apple apple pie. Who can be against everybody's customer centric? So it's no longer a customer a competitive advantage to be customer centric. Um, Everybody is you need to go to the next level, which is this level of obsession. And so the way I test, I ask companies to very simply test how obsessed they are. I said, look, ask yourself two different questions. So the first one is, what don't we know about our customers that we should know? And literally get there with a whiteboard or a piece of paper and write down the things that you don't know that you should know. But it's a very simple list. And And that list actually gets quite long very quickly. Like, oh my gosh, there's all kinds of things we don't know. Okay. And then you, then you think about, well, how are we going to collect that data? How are we going to get our hands on it? And you know, how are we going to use it? So that's one question you ask yourself. And then the second one is, what don't you know about your customers that if you did would be game-changing mm. for your business? and In fact, it could change the whole business that you're in. That's a much shorter list. Sometimes it demands more thought. But again, if you just take a white piece of paper and you start really focused on that, those two pieces of paper you want to end up writing a bunch of things on each one. Suddenly they challenge you you say, Hey, we, I thought we were customer centric, but there's all this stuff we don't know and that we're not even going after. And mm-hmm. so it really then challenges how customer centric are we. No, we need to be customer obsessed. And that's what these two those answering these those two questions can tell you.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, from the work that I do, I, I can see the huge, huge, huge opportunity in that, and everybody ultimately benefits. But what I'm seeing is more an obsession around how to cut through, um, really around a content play versus an uh, understanding data play. Um, and I'm curious as to what you see as, as the future in that space as well, in terms of, of content and what brands. Should be doing um, in terms of getting that cut through in areas where there is so much noise at the moment.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, this is a this is a question as old as advertising, as old as you know, as newspapers and you know, you, and radio. I mean, you always, if you're in the media business or the advertising business, you want to get people to notice your message, right, or notice what you're saying. Because if you don't, there's no point. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, it didn't fall, right? It's, it's nobody, nobody cares. And in the world of social media and, and the internet and Netflix and gaming and every other, you know, there's so much content in the world today. Um, you know, on one measure of content, I'll just give you one number, and it's around advertising. Advertising is only one form of content in the world, but it's estimated that in Australia or the developed markets each of us is exposed to about 3,000 different advertising messages messages every day. So 3,000 ads or brand messages or commercials
3: or, you know, 3,000. So that's just ads. That doesn't count the
0: other content that we're exposed to. Um, you know, and so you're, we're flooded. We're absolutely overwhelmed. So what are the two things that are starting, the two trends that are starting to happen to sort this out? So one is, the um, uh, many consumers, particularly those who are more affluent in many countries, are moving to um, a much more curated, ad-free environments. Right. So, um, uh, so take Netflix. Right. If I if I, I speak to an audience in Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, other cities, I ask I often, at one point, I ask the audience how many people are Netflix subscribers. Eighty percent of the hands will go up, minimum. Three or four years ago, that number was zero, right? So we've had this huge growth in Netflix subscription, and of course, Netflix is people pay their twelve, fifteen dollars a month, and for that they get no, they get great content, but they also get no ads, and they get curated content, content you know, those recommendations that are just for you. So there's this, there's this world of I'm used, consumers are getting used to curated um, experiences, and Facebook's one of them, Netflix is one of them, where the content is essentially prepared. and recommended for you based on what, you, what your, your preference is. And, and it's in many cases, the ads are removed from there. So you, that's one big force that's going on. And the second big force that's going on, it's kind of lights off the back of that, is the idea of personalization. So that if you are an advertiser, you need to get your head around the idea that we need to create personalized content that isn't necessarily ads, it's actually just content that puts our brand into the head space or the conversation around what that person is consuming, but doesn't in a way that speaks it's built from that person's point of view, not built from the brand's point of view. And it's built in such a way that, you know, you Jeff Bezos has famously said, he said, look, if we have four point five million customers, we should have four point five million stores. Mm. And so if you have 4.4 million customers and you want to put out content and you think about yourself as not just an advertiser, but a, a media company yourself, you need to have 4.5 million different you know, um, channels, uh, if you will, um, or at least be thinking towards that end in, in terms of personalization. So this is the problem. People are opting out of ad-supported media, especially more affluent people, and they're expecting, where they, where they are getting any content, they're expecting it to be much more tailored and personalized to them.
1: Mm-hmm. It's actually making the job harder, isn't it? For people that are looking at brands and customer experience, there's, there's no longer a strategy. I started uh, my marketing career way too long ago, probably about 18, 19 years ago, and at the time, you know, it was pretty easy. We just had to allocate budget to TV or radio or print campaigns, and the whole landscape has changed now. So it's almost reverting back to that personalization, but not just a name place. It's actually you've got to be truly, authentically, really authentic and personalized to to actually get that cut through.
0: Yeah, and and I think the... The challenge is also the opportunity, though, mm. because when everything's easy, everybody, you know, winds up in the same place, competing on the same basis. But when when the when the challenge is hard, um, the best and most innovative and most clever and most um, you know and most relentless relentlessly innovative companies succeed. So, the way I phrase it for businesses is, you know, this is one of your greatest opportunities because this is a disruptive, and, dis- mm. and disruption means it can move. It can go in two directions. You can be the disrupted, getting disrupted, or you can be the
1: disruptor. Mm-hmm. Love it. Now, given you are an expert in this space, and, um, and this is the work that you do in terms of advising uh, CEOs and the business landscape, I'm, I'm curious to ask your opinion on um, the recent um, activities, uh, the public, the media, the business conversation around how um, the unfortunate and horrific tragedy in Christchurch played out so quickly across social media platforms. And as somebody that is an expert in this space, what your thoughts are, not necessarily in terms of commenting on what happened, unless you want to, but more in terms of what we as a as a race, as as a society, need to do moving forward um, in terms of operating in the right way with this digital landscape.
0: Yeah, and look the the events at Christchurch, you know, many people, I think, with much more insight than I have into you know into into how that happened. And and social media was only one aspect of what happened there. But there's many smarter people, and uh, I think have said many uh, useful things around that um, in the past over the past week. So I don't necessarily need to add to the to, to that conversation. But I think where I can add something is is around this level that you just suggested that we we are running into this problem where we have these systemic global um, challenges that uh, and, and tragically, Christ just was a big you know, a horrible expression of one of them, which is around hate speech and tribalism, uh, whatever you call it, that, 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 that's abetted by the internet. And you know, these problems have, the world has always had problems. They've always been there. Um, but there's, there's come points at which in human history and in societies where we've said, look, the negative problem of, or you know, the negative externalities, if you will, which is sort of an economist phrase, of a platform or a system where they become too great that we have to do something about it and to do something about it is often we need to remove some of the freedoms or the, um, or the, you know, the free speech or the, the things that people were used to having actually need to, we're going to have to restrict because the negative stuff that's going on is just too great. Now, the world's been pretty good at doing this. I mean, this is good and bad for kind of localized issues for a long time. So this is too too many deaths. So what do we do? We started to tighten everything up. We we brought in greater fines for speeding and for driving without a seatbelt uh, and for drunk driving. We we uh, we improved road safety. We, we improved the safety of motor vehicles, and we did a lot of public education around this as well. So and. As a result, over the decades since, traffic fatalities in Australia have fallen significantly. We've saved a lot of lives as a result of this, and you know we still work on this today because there's you know we, there's still too many deaths on the road, but we have we have addressed that problem in a big way, and as and along the way, what do we do? We remove some people's freedoms. We actually you know, people used to be able to ride without a seatbelt. Well, suddenly it's now the law. You have to wear a seatbelt. People used to drive drunk. You can't drive drunk anymore. Um, you know, we and that and that level of Alcohol in your bloodstream has gotten very low um, that you're allowed to, with which you're allowed to drive, and so we kind of removed people's freedoms in, in, or limited them. But what the but the net effect for society has, and for individuals has been, you know, has, has been unequivocally better than the system we had before. So that's a localized problem. That's a problem in a country. We're getting to a point now where we're having we've got global problems. Okay, and and so the one big example recently has been climate change, right? This is a global systemic problem, and the world has been trying to solve it. And the world's been, probably done a very poor job, right? Because we can't get every country to agree. We, you know, even the science, even though the scientists generally agree, you, you know, you still get politicians popping up saying, I don't believe the science. There's all kinds of challenges with just trying to solve these problem, problems on a local level. Now we've got global challenges. What's happening now with the internet, I think, is moving into the realm of, of climate change as a global challenge for the world to come to grips with. The, you know, terrorism, hate speech, the kind of uh, the tribal filter bubbles that emerge uh, on on the internet, the dark web, you know, the way the internet is used to affect crime, to, for bullying, etc. Now, there's lots of good things the internet and social media do in the world. Lots of them. But I'm not going to enumerate that list here. But if you've and this is the same as there was lots of good benefits to people driving cars around Australia back in 1970, but the negative, I think, are now so great that we need to think differently and think much, much harder about how we draw the line and how we measure how good or bad the internet is. And we main, and we start to understand how can we take that, you know, that number, or whatever it is, you know, if, if, if the, if the internet on the scale of zero to 100 is at a 90 right now, how do we get that number down to 10? How do we reduce the toxicity of the internet? How do we reduce the negative externalities of the internet and social media, and and do this in a very, um, you know, concerted, driven, single-minded way—the way we've done we, in the past. We've dealt with things like um, road safety or public sanitation or reducing racism. You know, the, the countries around the world have been very good at doing these things. And so now we need to take that same energy and put it into the negative externalities of the internet.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got a, it's a, it's a big challenge, but I think, as you said earlier, with challenge actually is opportunity. So it's our opportunity to evolve it to its next stage. And thankfully there are some great minds working on it, which is, which is fabulous. Now, Stephen, this, um, this webinar is all about unleashing brilliance. What does
2: that mean to you?
0: Yeah, I love the title of it, um when I first um came across it, um, because I think brilliance sits inside of everybody. The humans are amazing. Like if you you look at what we're capable of, um just just walking, talking, music, um, art, um, scientific endeavor, you know, just um you know, building a house, building a family, you know, looking after your family, these are amazing things. We, we we can multitask. We can, you know, we can be different things to different people. You know, you can be a mother, you can be a corporate executive, you can be a a friend. It's quite amazing how brilliant we are, just as creatures walking the face of this earth. And then I think inside of every person is even a whole other level of brilliance that can be unleashed in all kinds of ways. And the way I think. The best way to unleash brilliance for anybody is in a way that it fulfills them, and it makes themselves and the people around them happier, healthier, and more fulfilled. And that's what you know. I I love to, uh, in my small way, try to do with my own the people in the circle around me. And uh, you know, I love this program, uh, your podcast as well, because you know, helping un- people unleash their brilliance, I think, makes the world a better place. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah, everyone's, I believe everyone's here for some reason, some awesome reason. Uh, if we can all get ourselves out of whatever box we've unconsciously put ourselves into or allowed others to put us into, it will allow us to to do the great work that we are we are here to do, which is, which is you know, I believe everyone like you, everyone is capable. Now I listened, um, to, to wrap up, I'm really interested in if you have a new habit uh, or a new belief system that you're working to, I was listening to a TED talk by a Navy SEAL this week, and he talked about the importance of making your bed. And, um, and that getting into the habit of making your bed every day it sets you up for success. Even if you have a bad day, at least you come back to home, your bedroom at the end of the day um, with a beautiful bed to get into. And it's something that they teach those, those new recruits. Have you got a habit? That has now become such a part and parcel of who you are, Stephen. That that helps you um, have a productive, great day, purpose-filled uh, week.
0: Mm, that's a great question. My father was in the navy, and he was a you know, he was very good at making his bed. So now I know why. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was driven into him. Um, two habits I'll mention, and one is about. Productivity, but the other is about something bigger than that. Um, so uh, my habit around productivity is—I um, mean, this isn't a habit—but I, I will ignore email for big parts of my day. And uh, so I—I I turn off email notifications on my phone, so my phone doesn't, you know, make that little noise every time an email comes in. I turn that off. I, I turned it off on my computer, so they don't pop up on the little side. I've got a Mac, and they don't pop up on the side when they come in. And the reason for that is, I, I I want to make a habit of myself, which is not to be distracted. There's too much distraction in my world, and I I try to remove distraction. So, I, because that allows you to focus your mind, and I think you know, and, and and achieve greater things. Distractions are the enemy of of brilliant. And so we need to, uh, particularly pointless distraction. So that's one thing. And but but the other thing I do and I do this every time when I come home to my house, um, I stop before I walk into my house. And I, I'm not religious, but I was raised a Catholic. So I have a, I have a holdover from that. I stop and I, and I do the sign of the cross on myself before I walk into my home every day. Every day, every time I come home without fail, I do this. And the reason is I just like to stop for a minute and reflect on how lucky I am and how blessed I am at, to have my family inside and the life that I have and, you know, and live in this beautiful country uh, and be accepted here in this beautiful country. I wasn't born here in Australia, you know, but I am an immigrant here and I feel lucky to be an immigrant here. And, yeah, just to, to give thanks.
3: Mm.
0: And I think it, my, my wife will tell you that I'm almost uh, – I give thanks a little too much. I'm always appreciative of what I have. And uh, so many people in this world don't have anything or don't have the opportunities to have anything. And my God, you know, we are so lucky. And I, I just think if we gave thanks more, we, we would probably be more you know, more mindful of, of those that don't have, you know, what we just, we, we can often take for granted.
1: Mm, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, that that moment of, of gratitude, it's one of the things I do every night before I go to sleep. In my journal, I make a point of writing down just three things I'm grateful for, three to four things, and it could be anything. Like Even the, I remember the other day, I was actually grateful for the storms that we were having because it cooled everything down. But it is just taking that moment to, to stop and reflect because life does go so quickly if you allow it to. Um, just going back to that influential person in your life, and in your life you talked about Mark Zuckerberg. Um, if he was in the room with you now, what would you like to say to him?
2: Um
0: I think two things one is thank you for the opportunity to work with you and with facebook um doing my time there uh, uh thank you but the other is i I think you need to take a lot more responsibility for the negative
3: sides of of facebook and and that is
0: Uh, I think that's something he's working on, but I don't think he's where he needs to be.
1: Mm. Stephen, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you today. Um, I've scribbled so many notes, but some key things that you talked about that um, I'd love our listeners to think about is you talked about the opportunity that does exist to turn unwilling listeners into uh, teachers and the empowerment that that gives the people around us you. And I think that's something that we can all take into our everyday work of how do we turn those people around us, the unwilling listeners into teachers. Um, With that um, was the value of the knowledge around you. Again, I think so many of us are rushing through life or thinking we know everything and yet there's incredible amounts of knowledge around us at our fingertips. And I think it's this diversity of thinking and knowledge that is going to help us find opportunities, answers, innovations into into the future. Um, The the other thing you talked about is how
2: to get deep customer
1: centricity. We talk about focusing um, on customers, but your piece around focusing on the friction and finding ways to actually obsess about your customers is key. And Those two awesome questions of, Uh, what don't you know about your customers that you should know? And secondly, what don't you know that if you did would be game-changing? I'm certainly going to go away and have a little think about those two questions today. And finally, your piece about distraction being the energy of brilliance. Um, So thank you so much for sharing all of your insight. My final question to close today, we often talk about – or ask people what do you want to become when you grow up. I'm curious about what would you, Stephen, like to be remembered
2: for?
3: <laughs> um, that
0: I, um, look, and, and I have no uh, delusion that I'll be remembered for very long after I'm gone. Um, hopefully my family will remember me a bit, but then, then I will just be ashes, uh, cast the wind. Uh, but, I think the, I think that the one thing that all people can aspire to, and I would as well is that I did in my small way, I left the world a better place than I found it mm. and that's it mm.
1: that's great, Stephen. thank you so much um, it's been fascinating following your journey and researching you actually for this podcast. We could keep talking, and I hope one day I get to meet you in person, thank you for everything you're doing and your passion for Australian business leaders and helping us become uh, more relevant and using uh, more forward-thinking digital strategy into the future, which can only help all of us. Um, Your work is fabulous. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Janine. It's been a fantastic, fabulous conversation and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon.
1: Thank you, Stephen. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner
0: Show. Follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more. Visit her website janinegarner.com.au Brilliant people, extraordinary results.